Hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? How are we feeling with that extra hour of sleep? Pretty good? Excited? Those are people who don't have young children, right? Like, yeah, it's awesome! And then you have young children, you're like, this was the worst. Um, I enjoy it. I, I try to make the most of it by just sleeping. Um, but I also think tonight the sun sets at 4.44 p.m. And that brings such sorrow to my heart. But it is what it is. And also, I just want to say, on this happy Sunday morning at 10 a.m., that as I look at your faces, knowing that there is a Seahawks game happening at this very moment, you all are the true people of God. I want you to know that, okay? We love the other ones, but, you know, sometimes God's people have to wander in the wilderness. That happens, all right? But I am so grateful that all of you are here today. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. Uh, open up to the Gospel of Mark. We are going to pick up where we left off last week, Mark chapter 5. Uh, we'll start in verse 21, and we'll go all the way through 43. Um, just saying, it's a long story. It's longer than last week, and so if you have a hard copy of the Bible, it will be helpful, or you can just pull it up on your phone, whatever, it's all good. Uh, make your way there, Mark 5, starting in verse 21. Now, remember, we are studying this gospel, the gospel of Mark, uh, to acquaint ourselves more deeply with the life of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he was like, what he did. And, and at this point in, in the gospel of, of our story today, we are engaging with the third and fourth of four different episodes that display the authority of Jesus Christ. In essence, this series of stories, Jesus calming the storm, Jesus healing the, the, the demonized man in Decapolis, and the, the two encounters that we'll see today, all of these stories, this series of stories right now, is meant to provoke a reaction from us. It's meant to, to draw us to a place where we respond and we're confronted with a question, and it's this. If this Jesus really is who he says he is, how then should I respond? If this Jesus really is who he says he is, how then should I respond with my life? If this Jesus really walked this earth and had power over the natural world by, with like just his own words, instantaneously calming the storming sea, if this Jesus really had power not just over the natural world, but also over the supernatural world and commanded a legion of demons out of that demon-possessed man, freeing him from the bondage of demon possession, if this Jesus can do what, he, what we'll see him do today, if he has the kind of authority that he says he has, how then should we respond? How then should we respond? Um, nearly 20 years ago, uh, I was living in the city of Chicago, going to school there at a little school called Moody Bible Institute, and I had this part-time job there. Anyone have a part-time job in college before to pay your way through a little bit? Um, I worked at a little, little company, a little small company there called Starbucks. Have you heard of it? <laughs> worked at Starbucks. The interesting thing about my Starbucks, though, is it was a really unique kind of location. Um, we were at the bottom of this, like, really tall luxury condominium complex thing. We were right off of Michigan Avenue. You know Michigan Avenue in Chicago? That's, like, the main drag there. And then we were right around the corner from this really fancy hotel called the Four Seasons Hotel. We were the closest Starbucks there. So the kind of clientele that we got uh, we, we drew in a lot of people with authority, TV personalities like Jerry Springer, you know him? We, we, politicians of all sorts in the city of Chicago, um, movie stars, athletes, you name it. Like you would just be working there and you would encounter someone like that. And one Saturday morning, 
It was, a, it was a typical Saturday morning here at the store. I'd have to wake up at like 4.30 in the morning to go there to open it up, and we would have two lines out the, like out the entire room, like for hours straight. And so in Chicago, when that's the case, you are just like buckled down, you are trying to get through orders, you're, you're making your way, it's chaos, there is no flavor whatsoever of customer service at all. It is, like customer service is efficiency in the city at this point, right? And so it's, it's, it's in this kind of environment where I'm taking orders on a Saturday morning, getting through order after order after order, when, when someone comes up, and yet you have, to, you have to know here, I had like a hat on, so I'm not really looking at people's faces. Someone comes up and they order four venti cappuccinos, not too wet and not too dry. <laughs> now, now, now I don't, maybe you don't know anything about coffee, but, but what I'll say is that to, to make that kind of drink uh, is almost impossible because you're trying to meet someone's subjective standards of what this drink is, and they don't just want one, they want four of them. And, and so I just kind of paused in disbelief, and I looked up with this like mildly perplexed and probably like hostile look in my eyes <laughs> at this person. And, and this person just kind of backs up a little bit and says, whoa, don't kill me, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> the person was Will Ferrell. And it was at this point where I totally blacked out. I don't remember, I literally don't remember what happened next. I have no idea if he ever got those cappuccinos. I, I, I really have no clue. But, but, but what I do know is that when he walked in, he, he commanded a sort of authority. He, now, he's just a funny guy in some funny movies. He's just a celebrity. But, but, but for whatever reason, whether he liked it or not, or whether we liked it or not, there was authority there. And I, I, I'm assuming we made his cappuccinos. Now, here's the deal. Um, why do we respond this way when we encounter authority? For instance, like if, if you're driving and there are police lights behind you, what do you do? You drive fast? Oh, you, yeah, no, sorry. You pull over, right? <laughs> When you were a kid and you were running around the pool and you heard the lifeguard say, walk, what did you do? You became a speed walker, right? <laughs> We've all seen that. Why do we respond this way? Because people with authority demand a response. People with authority demand a response. And in today's story, we see that the presence and authority of Jesus can provoke one of two responses and it depends, uh, it's up to you to decide how deep you will go. And so let's look at the first verse here in our passage, verse 21, Mark 5. Mark writes this. When Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, now again, uh, remember, Jesus had crossed once to Decapolis, he's crossing back now to the Capernaum region. Look what happens here. A large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came up, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he asked him urgently, he pleaded with him. That's the same word that we saw with Jesus and the demon-possessed man when the demons pleaded with Jesus not to be sent from the region. So we see the common thread with the language through all of these stories here. And he pleaded with Jesus. He asked him urgently, my little daughter is near death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. And Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. 
And so, so Jesus goes back to the other side and the people who live there hear of the news that Jesus is back and they crowd around him. Why? Because they know that he has the ability, he has the power, he has the authority to heal sickness. He has the authority to cast out demons and they want help. These people, they want hope. And this is the first response we see in this story. We can have hope when we acknowledge the authority of Jesus. We can have hope in our lives when we acknowledge the authority of Jesus. And so this man, Jairus, he is among the crowd. He hears that Jesus has returned, and and he's noted here to be a synagogue leader. He's a synagogue leader, and what that doesn't mean is he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a Pharisee, he wasn't a rabbi. Synagogue leaders were local lay leaders who helped with their local synagogue. They would set up the worship services, and they would maintain the facilities And so with that would come a certain degree of standing in his community. He would have a little bit of authority himself. But but he didn't regard that standing, he didn't regard that authority as anything. In fact, he kind of cast all of that to the side and he humbled himself as a grown man by throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. And why did he do that? Why was he so desperate? What did he need? Well, he's dealing with a problem. He had a sick daughter. His daughter is really sick. And you have to imagine that they tried just about everything to help his daughter, daddy's little girl, but, but nothing is working and, and she is close to death and he is desperate. And even, even though Jesus is this controversial figure, even though Jairus has no doubt heard slander about Jesus amongst the various other people in the synagogue, Jairus He he doesn't consider that and he runs to Jesus and he throws himself at his feet because he is desperate to see his daughter made well. And I remember October of 1992, just a little over 30 years ago, um, we were heading out to Awana. So for us back then, it must have been a Wednesday night uh, to go to Awana. But I remember um, family friends of ours had picked me and my, my two younger sisters up to go to Awana uh, because that night uh, my parents couldn't come with uh, because my younger brother Kyle had been having these stomach pains uh, for months now and they weren't getting any better. They just continued to get worse and worse. And so the doctors were like, we want to run some more intensive tests. And so they were scheduled for that night. And I remember getting home that night, the friends dropping us off at the home, and and my parents weren't alone. Uh, They were with some other family members and friends from the church, and there was crying. And and I I remember even as an eight-year-old boy that something in this moment wasn't right, and and, and what, what, what had happened was he had gone in for these tests, CAT scans, MRIs, blood tests, and they discovered that my younger brother Kyle, at the age of two and a half years old, was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer called neuroblastoma. And starting immediately, Kyle would undergo a barrage of treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, a bone marrow transplant, everything. They threw everything at this cancer. And why? Because my parents were desperate to see the cancer eliminated from their son. They were desperate. And we have to imagine that's the kind of desperation uh, this man would have felt over his daughter. His little girl is sick, nothing is working, and Jesus arrives on the scene, and he's heard story after story of Jesus and this great work he can do, and he's like, this, this is it. This is the answer. This is the antidote. This is what's gonna help. Maybe you're in this place. Maybe you've been in this spot before. Maybe you're in this spot right now, and maybe it's not a sick child, but maybe it's a medical diagnosis that you recently received from a doctor. 
Maybe it's a damaged or broken relationship that feels completely beyond repair and there's nothing you can do to fix it. Maybe you've been on a months-long job search and finances are getting tight and the season never seems like it's going to end. Whatever it is, maybe you've known this spot, maybe you're in this desperate spot and you've felt like you've tried everything and nothing seems to work. Despair is rising and, and this is the place that Jairus is in. But there was still hope because Jesus was there and Jairus knew after hearing story after story, he could fix this situation. And so by acknowledging the authority of Jesus in his life here, Jairus is holding on to hope. Now, hope's an interesting thing because our hope, listen, is only as good as the person or the thing or the object that we place it in. And we have a tendency to place our hope in some pretty lackluster, trivial things. We put hope in trivial things, like bank accounts, like the Chicago, oh my gosh, really? Okay. I'm gonna add that for next time I preach this. That was good, okay, that was good. Like the bears, yes. Like technology, like coffee, like politicians and political parties. We believe that if the market performs uh, well, if we have X amount of dollars in our bank account, then everything's gonna be okay. We believe that if a certain political leader or political party is put in a place, they're gonna solve all of our local, national, international problems. Not gonna happen. We believe that if there was just a little bit more education, a little bit more technology, that the world, our lives, our circumstances would improve. We put our hope in trivial things. Those are all trivial things. We put our hope in relationships. We believe that if we just find the right person or if I make my spouse to be the right person or, or if I get in with that group of people or if I meet that key person, then that's gonna change everything for me. So we put our hope in relationships. In essence, what we do is we put our hope in an ideal future, a future where frustration and friction are gone and we have a steady stream of income, a fulfilling job, we're healthy and we have meaningful relationships and then when that life is finally achieved, we will finally experience the peace and joy and contentment we've been looking for. It's not true. But listen to this, friends. Regardless of how dire your situation might be, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a child of God, there is hope. But hear this, it's not a cheap hope. It's not a cheap hope. It's not a hope that promises that our hardest circumstances will be resolved when we want and how we want it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you have a hope, but it is a greater hope than that. It's a hope built on the foundation of the resurrection of this Jesus. It's a hope that fixes its eyes, not on the fleeting troubles and joys of this world, but it's a hope that's founded on the reality that Christ did not just come to die, but he also rose again, and by rising again, listen, he changed the very fabric of our reality and secured our hope for a better world to come. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He wrote, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but it's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. I love this part. 
If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. Hope is a great thing. We are meant to be a people full of hope. But we need to make sure that what or who we are placing our hope in is worthy of that hope and has the authority to carry and hold and fulfill those hopes. In essence, you have to do an inventory of the things you're placing your hope in and ask yourself this question. What authority does this thing, this institution, this person really have? What kind of authority do they really have? Because if they have limited authority, they have a limited ability to fulfill their promises. And Jesus Christ in this story that we're looking at today is showing all of us here, all of those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that he has complete and total authority and he is worthy of our hope. Now our story kind of takes a right-hand turn and starts to pick up some drama and tension. Look at verse 25. Now a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. And she had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And so now, now Jesus isn't just dealing with the challenge of this man Jairus and his like very sick daughter. This woman comes up with this pressing need, this, 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 this problem. She's endured this bleeding issue for like 12 years. I mean, let's just like stop for a moment and look at all the ways this woman would have suffered in this kind of community at this point in time in history. She would have suffered physically. She was suffering physically from the constant loss of blood. She would have probably been anemic and weak and tired and hurting. The word for endured a great deal here uh, can simply be translated uh, suffered. It's the Greek word pasco, uh, which we get our word passion from, like the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. Mark uses this word to describe her suffering. She would have suffered not just physically, but she would have suffered financially. The story tells us that she spent all that she had and she gave this money to doctors, but with their potions and their like ancient remedies, nothing helped. In fact, it didn't just not help, it made things worse. She suffered worse physically as a result of it, but she also suffered financially. She's now destitute. She now has nothing, no money. And then finally, she would have suffered socially and spiritually. And because of this bleeding issue, this woman would have been isolated because according to Leviticus 15, she would have been unclean. And she wouldn't have been able to go out in public. She wouldn't have been able to touch other people lest she make them unclean. And so she would have been socially isolated. She would have suffered socially. And she would have suffered spiritually because she wouldn't have been allowed to go to temple or women's Bible study or a small group. And those were the primary ways people connected with God back then was to go to temple and worship with others. She wouldn't have been afforded that opportunity because of her condition. And so this woman would have suffered in just about every imaginable way possible. There are all sorts of things that we go through in life that can put us in the same boat as Jairus and this woman. Again, maybe it's a bad diagnosis. Maybe it's a problem in our lives that we are just longing to be free of and it continues to hang over our heads like a dark, rainy cloud and we just can't seem to shake that hang-up, that hurt, that problem. 
And maybe we've tried everything in this world like this woman. We've gone to physician after physician. We've gone to therapy groups. We've read all the self-help books. Maybe we've spent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to try to solve this problem in our lives, desperately hoping that if I just take this pill, if I just join this group, if, if I just buy this thing, it will finally set me free only to realize that it doesn't. This is exactly where this woman would have been at. Rock bottom, basically. But, but Jesus had arrived to town. And as a result, like Jairus, she acknowledged his authority and there was still hope. Look at verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. For she kept saying, if I only touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Verse 29, and at once the bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus knew at once that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, bro, you see the crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? But he looked around to see who had done it. Now this story at this point just gets wild, right? I mean, it's crazy at this point. Jesus is on his way with Jairus, urgent matter, red alert, sirens flashing, we're going to help, and all of a sudden this woman sneaks up because she believes in, in her heart by faith that if I just touch his clothes, if I just touch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed. And was she right? Yeah, she was right. Mark uses his favorite word of all time, immediately or at once. It's this Greek word, euthis. He uses it throughout the whole gospel to kind of set up this sort of breakneck pace of the life of Christ. And, and just like Jesus immediately calmed the storm, Jesus immediately heals this woman. But then as a result, we have this funny interaction, right? Where they're, they're, they're in this crowd. Remember, Mark said the crowd pressed around him. And Jesus is like, who touched my clothes? And his disciples are like, bro, are you serious right now? It's like a Taylor Swift concert up in, like it's crazy in here right now. There's so many people, like what, what do you mean who touched my clothes? The answer, Jesus, is everyone. Everyone touched your clothes. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm getting at. It's not what I'm getting at because he felt like this power leave him. Look at verse 33. Then the woman, with fear and trembling, it's like if we slow down enough, we can just feel the tension at this moment, Right? Because this woman knew she wasn't supposed to be out in public. This woman was trying to get a drive-by healing, right? <laughs> and yet she, she knows that she's seen. And that's the last thing she wants. And so with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she came down and like Jairus before her, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Look at Jesus' response. He said to her, daughter, it's a beautiful, intimate term. The last time she'd probably been called daughter was decades ago. And here Jesus is looking at her, giving her full dignity, saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus doesn't condemn her in that moment. He doesn't judge her in that moment. We see this gracious, loving, kind response from Jesus. He commends her and this is important. He notes here for, for, for the readers, for us included, to note that it wasn't some sort of superstitious thing that Jesus had these super holy clothes because they were on Jesus, but Jesus says what made her well? Her faith. 
Her faith made her well. This woman acknowledged the authority of Jesus and with the little faith she could muster up in her desperate, destitute situation, risked her well-being and risked the the supposed well-being of those around her according to the social religious customs at the time to seek out healing from this Jesus and by acknowledging the authority of Jesus, even though she should have despaired at the point of giving up, she still had hope. We can have hope when we acknowledge the authority of Jesus. There's hope, regardless of how despairing you might feel, regardless of how difficult your situation might be, there is still hope. About five or six months after my brother was initially diagnosed, he had gone through all the different treatments, he had gone through radiation, he had gone through chemotherapy, he had a bone marrow transplant, and like four or five months later, the doctors declared, the cancer's gone, the cancer's gone. And 100 days after that, we had like a 100-day party, which was 100 days of Kyle in remission. And he had just turned three years old, and it was this big celebration, and we had all this fun, and, and it was like, man, life is going back to normal. We had a great summer, um, summer of 93, and the Bulls won a championship. It was great, right, you know? <laughs> Wonderful time. Everything was back to normal until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. And in October of 93, Uh, Kyle started having stomach pains again and they took him to the doctor and the doctors said that the cancer was back and this time it was terminal. There was nothing they could do for him. What do you do then? What do you do then when you face an impossibly difficult circumstance and you have thrown yourself at the feet of Jesus, grasping for hope, and it seems like you've found the answer, you've found the antidote, but then, but then the rug just gets pulled out from under your feet. Let's keep reading our passage. Look at verse 35. While he, this is Jesus, was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house saying, your daughter's died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Can you imagine the fresh flood of despair that would have just flowed over that man in that moment? I mean, he was so close. He was so close. Jesus had just gotten back into town just in time. He was able to get Jesus' attention. He was able to persuade Jesus to come to his house. They were literally on the way to his house, and then all of a sudden, here in Mark chapter five, uh, this woman shows up. And, and, and takes Jesus' attention away from the problem that, that you were drawing him toward. How would you respond in that situation? Would you like lash out in anger at the woman? Like I had him first. Would you just like break down in tears, sobbing? Like I knew, th- I knew this was gonna be the end all along. Would you, would you just kind of be frozen in disbelief? Just like paralyzed? How did Jairus respond? Let's keep reading. We actually see Jesus' response first here in verse 36. And I love this. But Jesus, paying no attention to what was said, he's just like, shut up. I'm ignoring this. Like, it's not important. He told the synagogue leader, he looks at the synagogue leader and he says this, do not be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your difficult thing, your trial, as a follower of Jesus, you will hear 
message after message after message of people telling you, don't bother with Jesus anymore. Stop following him. You will have an internal voice rise up in the midst of your trial saying, it's not worth it, it's not working. But what does Jesus say to Jairus? What does he say to all of us? He says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe. Listen, church, whatever you're going through, whatever you face, you have nothing to fear and you are able to persevere through whatever God has you going through during this season of your life when you double down and you place your faith in the authority of Jesus. Because listen to this, if if we can have hope when we acknowledge the authority of Jesus, we can persevere through anything when we surrender to Jesus. We can persevere through anything when we surrender to Jesus. And notice the difference. It is one thing as a human being to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. It's one thing to read about what he's done in the scriptures. It's one thing to hear stories of what Jesus has done in other people's lives and believe that that Jesus can bring that same hope and that same healing to the hurting parts of your life. It's another thing though. It's another thing to surrender. It's another thing to surrender the very fabric of our existence to the rule and reign of Jesus and his authority, even when it seems like all hope has been truly lost and gone. And so Jairus is faced with a decision. He's faced with a decision. Does he listen to the people who came from his home saying, don't bother with the teacher anymore. Jesus can't help in this situation. We know he can cast out demons. We know he can heal the sick. But bro, your daughter's dead. Come back. We've, we've got the hired mourners, they're, they're there and you know, it's over. Or, or, or does he press on? And does he continue to follow Jesus? Verse 37, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue leader where he saw the noisy confusion and the people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why are you distressed and weeping the child is not dead, but asleep. And, and, and they began making fun of him. But he forced them all outside. I love that. Jesus is nice, but like, you know, he also gets down to business sometimes as well, right? And he forces everyone outside. He's like, no, 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 we don't need this distraction right now. And he took the child's father and mother. And he took his own companions. And he went into the room where the child was, then gently Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, for little girl, I say to you, get up. And the girl got up at once and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And notice some of the similarities between these stories that Mark is interweaving. Remember, the woman was bleeding for 12 years. This little girl is 12 years old. It is the daughter of the synagogue leader. And he calls the woman daughter. Mark is intentionally weaving these stories together so that we would understand the power of the authority of Christ in our lives. And look at their response. They were completely astonished. They were amazed. They were blown away. So how does Jairus respond when all hope seems lost? He just received news that his daughter had died. He presses on and he surrenders himself to the authority of Jesus because where else is he gonna go? He's tried everything else, nothing else has worked and so he's able to persevere through the seemingly impossible and what does he witness? He gets to witness a miracle. He gets to see his daughter come back to life. 
It's amazing. Here's, here's what I wish I could say to all of us this morning. I wish I could say that when we surrender to the authority of Jesus and persevere even through the most difficult of circumstances, every situation ends like this, ends with a miracle. But, but, but we live in this world and we know that's not true. It's just not true. You know, um, after my brother was diagnosed that second time, um, his condition deteriorated rapidly. Um, they couldn't do anything medically for him and within six weeks he had passed away. Uh, we had people praying and we prayed but, 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 but he was gone and it was tremendously painful. It was, it was so hard. It was so difficult and you know, I got, I got to watch as just like a nine-year-old boy at a front row seat to watch as my parents went through this, so the seemingly impossible, losing a child. And, 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 and what was so amazing about this was that they didn't surrender to despair, but, but they surrendered to the authority of Jesus Christ in their lives. And it wasn't pretty. <laughs> it wasn't perfect. It was quite painful the whole time. But I watched as my parents leaned into the body of Christ, leaned into the church. They leaned into practicing his presence. They leaned into the promises that God lays out through his word and they surrendered themselves to Jesus. Why? Because like Jairus, where else are they gonna go? (laughs) Who else has the authority to fulfill all promises? You see, Jesus doesn't just have authority over the natural. Jesus doesn't just have authority over the supernatural. Jesus doesn't just have authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over death. He has authority over death. And if Jesus has authority over death, here are the implications. Jesus has authority over everything. Everything. And if there's no limitation on his authority, remember what we said earlier, there's no limitation on his ability to fulfill every one of God's promises to you. No limitation. In Colossians, it says all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so when you are walking through seemingly impossible circumstances, we can surrender ourselves to the authority of Jesus because he will fulfill every one of his promises. He promises to be present. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me and your rod and staff, they comfort me. He promises comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a lot of comfort. (laughs) He promises to give us peace. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. That's what it means to surrender to God, letting our requests, our prayers, our needs known to him. And then he promises that the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in this Christ Jesus. He promises guidance in the midst of chaos. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Trust in him. Surrender to him. Because Jesus has all authority and because of that, he is able to make good on all of his promises. I promise this. I promise this. And when we surrender to him, to his authority, we are able to persevere through the the seemingly impossible with an unshakable hope. 
And, and so, I, so I wanna end where we begin and just ask that question. If this Jesus really is who he says he is, how then should we respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you that when we acknowledge his authority, we have hope. When we surrender to his authority, we can persevere through anything. Lord, I know there are some in this room today who are facing impossible circumstances. And sometimes there are acute tragedies that are just difficult and, and come in out of nowhere and just totally reorient our plans. But sometimes, God, the, these things that we wrestle with, the, these things that just seem to erode at our hope, uh, Lord, they are, they are, they've been going on for a long time. Uh, they're relationships that have been an issue. They're certain hangups in our own life that have been a problem. And we wonder, will this situation ever be made well? Will I ever be made well? I know there are people here today, God, that, that come before you and faithfully show up here at church, but Lord, they're hanging on by a thread. And they're struggling and, 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 and they're longing to believe, Lord, that you do have the authority. That you, have, that you have the authority to fulfill all of those promises that you truly are a loving God that is looking at them and is near to them. God, your word says you're near to the brokenhearted, but sometimes, God, it feels like you're a million miles away. So for those of us who are in that boat today, Lord, I just pray that your gracious presence would just flood their lives right now. You would meet them in this space, God. You would show yourself to be true and good and real. Lord, I pray for those today, God, who've never acknowledged you. Heard stories about you. Maybe they grew up going to church. But I pray that today would be the day that they would acknowledge your authority in their lives. Maybe it's through some despair, some difficult situation, but God, I pray that you would, like Jairus, like this woman, draw them to their knees, to a place of surrender before you, God. Right now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take communion together as a family. And communion is this beautiful, ancient sacrament that um, we get to partake in and participate in with the, the, the church global throughout history. It's for those who've placed their faith in Christ. And so if that's not you, um, just please abstain from this moment. But you know, I was thinking about this sermon and I was thinking about Jesus and I was thinking about, um, you know, J Jesus knew suffering. Right? That's a no-brainer. But Jesus didn't like com compartmentalize his life. Uh, and what I mean by that is when we see Jesus like on the verge of facing death, punishment on the cross in the most shameful, horrific way, um, what does Jesus do? He's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is crying out to God, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is like, I don't want this. And, and here's what I don't like about church sometimes. I, I don't like when like the idea is, and maybe you've heard this said before, um, like, like, Lord, would you like let, our, let us keep all of our problems and stuff out there? Would we be able to focus on you in here and kind of leave all that baggage at the door? I, I don't like that. I hate that, actually. I, I, think, I think we need to bring all of that stuff in here. Yeah. I think we need to bring all of that, that, that weight, the hurt, the stuff that's distracting us, and not put that out of our mind, but we need to bring that before the Lord. The hardship, the trial, the difficulty, whatever it is we're facing. And so uh, as, the, as the band plays this next song, uh, here's what I want us to do. 
um, I, I just want us to spend some time reflecting on, on, on the things in our lives that are leading us to a place of despair. And, and, and would we bring those to mind and, and would, we, we say, would we just ask Jesus, as this next song is playing, would we invite the Spirit just to be like, God, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do with this? And, and just, just do what he says. <laughs> Lay it at his feet. Surrender it. Give it over to him. It won't be the last time you have to do it. But would we leave here today knowing that we've surrendered that thing, our lives maybe, to him? And then when you're ready, you can go up and head to the sides and get the elements. And when the song's over, we will take communion together.